Folks, and welcome to the Daily Ratings Podcast. It's a show where each week we'll sit down with Vincent Daly to get his thoughts on the latest movies he's been watching, both older films and new releases. And don't worry, there's no spoilers. Vince will give a brief review of the movie, share some thoughts, and of course, then rate the film. The Daily Ratings are always fair, honest, and most importantly, they're consistent. On today's show, Vince will be rating and reviewing... A Damsel in Distress, directed by George Stevens. Sixteen Candles, by John Hughes. Amores Peros, by Alejandro Inaritu. We have newly released Megan, by Gerard Johnstone. And finally, Infinity Pool, directed by Brandon Cronenberg. It's going to be a great show, folks, so stay tuned and enjoy. Daily, how we doing, buddy? Thomas, how's it going? Uh, it's going okay on this end. How was your week of movies, man? A uh, week was good. A uh, lot of different projects going simultaneously, so I was uh, happy to have an agenda instead of <laughs> instead of just being watching all random. over the place. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I like the array of stuff we have for sure. Yeah, uh, it is a big array, so there's a lot of variety there, and. Uh, uh, of course, uh, I texted you very, very early on, but uh, we swapped out Fear for Megan because uh, I was looking at that box office and I was like, why the hell would I cover Fear <laughs> when Megan is number one in the country? You know, SNL, you know, SNL skit and everything. So, uh, <laughs> well, number one besides Avatar, of course. Uh, right. Right, yeah. That goes without saying. But, okay, so there is some sort of formula that you stuck to this week. Because we have a little old, we have... Uh, yeah, what are we working on? Uh, of course, Fred Astaire February is back in force. Uh, we're starting a little bit oh. early because we have... Uh, next week, we're going to be doing uh, the Shyamalan special. Or not special, but the Shyamalan... It's kind you know, of film week. study. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Going to be starting a writer study on John Hughes, uh, which I'm excited for. And kind of covering his early work. John Hughes had an unbelievable run Un- an unbelievable run it's incredible yeah it's incredible. so if you don't know who john hughes is you will soon because yeah. we'll lift off the movies and everything like that yeah especially the span that he went on but okay so let's just start right away so we're going to start i didn't realize we were doing fred astaire february it's exciting <laughs> well you know one a week you know we started it early <laughs> not really i mean it's good it's, it's the first yeah yeah it's, it's february 1st so okay so this is 1937 this is a damsel in distress directed by george stevens mm-hmm. uh fred this is a common team correct george stevens did them he's have... done one other and and a very famous one so okay swing time okay so. gotcha okay so what do we get with this 37 damsel in distress fin uh so yeah uh uh, I mean, honestly, uh, I was so happy to return to some Fred Astaire films um, because, honestly, Tom, these are just like comfort food for me. Yeah, uh, and watching these films, uh, I, I really do love it. And 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 you know, moving towards the eventual the eventual 
personal list that I would have for that would go into a essential Fred Astaire special. Mm-hmm. Um, watching a lot more of these tests what I think will fall or won't fall into that list. So coming across something that I'm really raving about uh, or, or, or happy to talk about, that's probably going to get put to the side and, and I'll cover probably something else because that will go into the essential special list of, of covering Fred Astaire. For me, uh, watching these films, though, is is an absolute delight. Uh, Damsel in Distress is the classic uh, romance musical based off of the 1919 novel of the same name uh, and is also the second of only two films that director George Stevens does with Astaire, um, the first being the legendary Swing Time. Okay, which, that's why the name is... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Stevens uh, goes on to have a, a big career, including... Uh, uh, I don't know if I would call it a favorite, but 1953 Shane, uh, which, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe not a favorite, but certainly legendary, we would say. Yeah, uh, legendary a, a for sure. Yeah. We liked it, but we didn't love it. Yeah. You we know, did. we sat down and watched it just because of the name yep. recognition. Yeah. And we said, okay, we got to watch this Western. And it yep. was, um, it was fine. It was yeah. good. It was good. It was good. It was, yeah. Uh, yeah, but we're 100% on the same page. Uh, oh, oh <laughs> yeah. uh, how many years back do you think that? Five? Five years? Yeah, I mean, it could, honestly, could have need could have been more. Even. Yeah, I know. Who knows? Yeah, uh, but folks, uh, Tom and I, uh, you know, way back when, went back and uh, watched just a bunch of legendary westerns. Uh, and Shane is one of those names that uh, is legendary in the western space, but also legendary for writing as well. Uh, what it did to kind of shape a a modern blockbuster type of landscape. So. But in this, in Damsel in Distress, back to back to Astaire, uh, he plays his usual working actor uh, that is trying to escape some some trashy PR uh, that was released by his agents, uh, played by George Burns and Gracie Allen, uh, a real life famous couple. I didn't know, you know, I don't really know, <laughs> you know, these these old comedy duos, but uh, apparently George Burns and Gracie Allen are, are very famous in their own right, so them starring in this is uh, is kind of an interesting, uh, interesting piece of history if you want to watch uh, Damsel in Distress. This has him getting entangled with a royal family in England uh, whose daughter can't make up her mind on who to fall in love with. Uh, all of this is kind of the the setting for or the setup for a working staff that has a running bet pool on who she'll end up with. And that's kind of the whole comedic setup. Of, okay. He's this outsider coming into this royal family. You have the, you kind of have the the working man of the of the staff, uh, kind of betting against and 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 pulling the strings behind the scenes. Unfortunately, it does kind of boil down to the classic hmm. romance comedy of uh, I I thought I didn't love him and now I love him. You know, it's it's just the <laughs> classic. It's, it's all of these films. It's yeah, all of these films. <laughs> and maybe that's something to say about like rom coms in general, like. I personally was hmm. thinking about like Harry Met Sally or something like that, and I, watching this, I was saying to myself, "Wow, I mean, yes, it, it it's the presentation is so different, but yeah. romance comedies, they rom coms, they all work the same way. It's you know they kind of like each other, they they're on the outs, and then they go back to liking yeah, each I, other. Yeah, the formula had definitely changed like eighties and nineties. Yeah, but yeah. it's funny to think this was very much like rom com. Just even so, there was a decent amount of them. Yeah. They all were kind of the same, especially mm-hmm. back then. And exactly what we have now, some hit and then some are just 
god awful and some <laughs> right. just get lost in the shuffle oh, basically yeah. Yeah. and fred astaire is in all over that basically absolutely absolutely uh it is kind of funny though it, but it's funny how each thing stand out you mm-hmm. know with swing time or, yep. or, or top hat i forget if you really like top hat or not oh uh, yeah i i love top hat okay all right. um i i don't think it's the best top hat a lot of the times is like referred to as his top work uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's very good. Yeah. Very good. So now in 30s, he did so many, um, mm-hmm. movies like in, in such a short span, especially mm-hmm. in the 30s, he did multiple in 36, 37, yep. then he's just doing 38, 39. Would this be considered middle? This is early, er, early career still, correct? Yeah. I would say this is still early career. He's Maybe the forties still... is the mids, fifties, late fifties yeah. is when he's kind of getting. Yeah. There's also a break that he has in the fifties, I believe. And mm-hmm. then he comes back in early sixties, uh, which actually last year we covered some of those like yes. funny face yes. and whatnot. And he was like, yeah, he the came famous, back. I'm done with dancing type of thing. And so. his body was kind of failing him, right? Uh, I believe so. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I believe so. As uh, a lot of extreme tap dancers and dancers in general, you know, your, your body is not going to right. hold up, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, especially for the the one-upsmanship he has in choreographing his work movie to movie. You know, making a because why would you not want to, or, yeah, yeah, or more complex, you know. So basically, so going back to this in the rom com style, how does mm-hmm. this differ itself from the other Fred Astaire's or the rom coms of them of their time? You know, did uh, it, does it stand alone in any sort of way? Or no, I don't think it does. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely blends in. Uh, I, I would say musically is where it maybe stands apart because we okay. really do get some iconic numbers there. One thing that I think maybe lets this fall a little bit below uh, some of the uh, stair films we talked about, just to give kind of perspective, uh, there's a lot of jokes here that I personally just didn't really understand. Hmm. I don't know if, uh, we probably talked about this in private, but it's interesting watching some of these films sometimes, how they refer to events, like any comedy would use you know current events. Something that always makes me laugh is when they say uh, a joke about the Great War being mm. that it's going to be the last war. <laughs> and little do we know, <laughs> it, you know, World War II is around the corner. And so stuff like that is funny. I can get that. And there's almost an appreciation as well. Certain jokes here, though, uh, I just didn't understand the historical context. One of them being Rito. Anytime someone said Rito, like Rito. That was like left open and for a laugh, yeah, like a huge laugh, like it was really like put out there. So So I don't know if that was like slang. So righto wasn't used of just like oh, I'll be there at five tonight. Righto, yeah, exactly. But Uh, but it's just it was seen as maybe like low class, maybe or wait, wait, no, no, wait. But in that example (laughs) I just gave, right? Hey, I'll be there at five. Oh, righto, right. It was it was not used like that. Oh uh, no, it is used like that, or or more in a British way, like uh, you know, righto, cheerio, you know. Okay. Uh, and it was just what's I, confusing about that? I, though? I, I don't. I, I think don't, I've used righto in my life. No, before. no, not the use of the word. the The fact that the play on screen, the joke on screen, was that that was unacceptable. That was almost unfathomable oh, okay, that these characters okay. were using. And I was just like, okay. Uh, I mean, if anything, I'm with you. I'm like, what's the problem? I don't understand. There was also uh, just the the premise of them betting on who the the daughter is going to end up with also is a little weird. I mean, it's funny and it gets funnier as it goes mm-hmm. on, but initially it was just like, what what is this? What is what is going on? So <laughs> the comedy wasn't landing as as well as as it usually does. Did but... it hold up ninety years later? <laughs> Eighty five years later? Right. Right. <laughs> 
<laughs> but uh, other things I think hold up a lot uh, with with these movies. Uh, but uh, I, my focus in watching these films is again looking at Fred Astaire uh, as an actor and as a choreograph, uh, a choreographer, and how he is engaging and building his dance numbers in these in these musical comedies. And just like last year, I really want to end with highlighting um, a couple of the notable music and dance numbers. I would say stiff. Uh, the song Stiff Upper Lip has a great sequence that uses many pieces of a funhouse uh, in a sort of comedic dance, which is new. We don't really see jokes being a part of the dance number for Stair and, and crew, and uh, this was also a great highlight for Burns and Allen uh, as a real-life couple mm. to kind of interact in a fun, playful way and, and really utilize the, the funhouse mirrors and slides and collapsing stairs and uh, all this stuff. A very creative dance number. Uh, and of course, the classic song, uh, Nice Work If You Can Get It, is brought to life with uh, Astaire's love of percussion and dance. It's uh, it's done as a song number earlier in the film, or maybe say like, you know, 60% through, and at the very end, uh, it's paid off with a dance, and he's has Astaire has this turned over drum set in a semicircle around him and he's using that to tap and dance and hit on the cowboy and mm. he has two drumsticks and it's just like wow I mean it's just such an electric scene and it yeah. really is just so phenomenal I mean a great example I mean Damsel in Distress probably more middle of the road for all of Astaire's work yeah uh, as far but, as the story and act like the movie itself, yeah exactly kind of. it was yeah, just yeah, yeah. like you know he, he's it's a uh, uh, Lady in the Tramp type of kind of format, right, if you will. Right. You know, she's she's from royalty. He's just a working actor, you know, kind of thing. But what was so great about it is that even to the very last moment, Astaire was putting his all into the this, this choreography. And like with all things, uh, when I'm watching these films, I'm watching for to see what he's doing to to progress, to invent um, creative scenes. And at the, I mean, to the very last moments of the film, it's it's right there. I mean, he's just such a creative powerhouse. And and nice work if you can get it. Uh, a very iconic song. He was able to bring that to life. Uh, you know, in the in the end uh, in the end number. And it won one Oscar the film. Oh really? And it won for best dance direction. Wow. The guy who did it was uh, like her uh, Hermes Pan or something like that, mm. Hermes Pan. But okay. it was for Funhouse. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. That it is. It's a very big scene. Uh, okay, that so Funhouse yeah, dance. Yeah, yeah. yeah, stiff upper lip is the is the song number. And yeah, I mean it's it's a lot to coordinate. Um, but yeah, uh, honestly, the lot of love for this movie. Not mind blowing, but I understand that. In exploring these, I'm going to hit on maybe some of the more generic ones, middle mm-hmm. of the road. But yeah. again, uh, for my purposes and kind of watching my skin in the game to, to watch uh, more Fred Astaire movies besides my enjoyment is to, again, refine and refine and refine a essentials list on arguably, you know, one of the, the greatest actors that we've ever had as far as choreography and dance. And, and performers only, big time in yeah. film, yeah. And that's only going to come from watching the numbers themselves. We're going to go ahead and give Damsel in Distress a 66. Okay, 66, pretty good movie. Pretty good. Uh, I would almost be interested, would you be interested in splitting up kind of a 
essentials list with Fred Astaire, I would be interested of knowing, okay, here are the good films. Here are mm. films that are doing something different for the time that are actually enjoyable to watch. Mm-hmm. Here are the films that you watch for Fred Astaire's numbers. Mm. And maybe they correlate a little bit. Like sure. Swing Time is a good movie, plus there's good numbers. Yeah. Yep. But um, yeah, that would I would be interested in that. Yeah, uh, I, I think the the good news, at least for what I'm kind of exploring with the with the draft of the essential special, right, is I mean honestly, the good ones that have good numbers uh, are usually the ones that have good stories. They're correlation, well. yeah, yeah, they're correlated. Exactly. Yeah, it does it does kind of follow through there, and they do kind of escape the <laughs> the, the inconsequential antics of just like uh, I'm not in love now, I'm in love type right, of right. stuff. So. <laughs> All right, so that's sixty six percent with a damsel in distress that was 37 we're jumping ahead to 1984 this is 16 candles and again this is what we're starting with a john hughes study yes, now yes. john hughes wrote and directed this yeah but he's really known as like a power powerhouse writer yes yes so I, do you have the list in front of you do you want me to go ahead and kind of oh, run through them i mean yeah, so, yeah why don't you go through them because it, it really is it's almost mind-blowing how much he has a hand in so this is not all of them. He does have some no. that, I don't want to say stinkers, but some that just don't <laughs> sure. stick out like some yeah. of the others. I'm specifically going to be focusing on his kind of foundational works in the 80s, which, again, he kind of writes and directs and there's most some, of them. Yeah, there's much. big boys and big boys. So so uh, he's, let's start back. So in 83, he started with Mr. Mom, which is kind of his first. <laughs> and apparently and, and, a good movie. I've never yeah, seen it. Yeah, and it wasn't a horrible box office bomb or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. But Mr. Mom, he did a short story, National Lampoon's Vacation. Yep. Okay, 16 Candles. It's very interweaved with that brand. Too. Right. Then The Breakfast Club, National Lampoon's European Vacation, mm-hmm. Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. He does some kind of wonderful, which, eh, okay. But in the same year, he does Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Then he does The Great Outdoors. He does Uncle Buck. He does National Plan- Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. He does Home Alone. I mean, uh, yeah, that right there. I mean, to to have that long of a streak I of know. movies. And then it just And keeps, then the end cap I, is Home Alone, a, a colossal I wouldn't success. call, well, not end cap. I mean, and th- yes, that's kind of his massive run. Right. I mean, in the 80s, he's on fire. Yeah, yeah. Doing multiple unbelievable hits a year. Mm-hmm. But in the 90s, very Home Alone-centric. He does Home Alone 2 and everything like that. He does movies like Dennis the Menace and, <laughs> and the Beethoven movies. <laughs> right, right. Um, but things he did, 96, he does 101 Dalmatians. And then he does Flubber in 97 as wow, well. Wow, he did Flubber? He did Flubber. Oh, man. And then after that is when it kind of goes downhill. That's when he does, he's doing like Beethoven the third or something right, like that, Beethoven right. and other yeah, stuff. Yeah. And he passed away in 2009, unfortunately. Like, he was only 59 when he died. Oh, really? Oh, wow. But this is who we're dealing with. I yeah. mean, I mean that, A juggernaut. That run when mm-hmm. you're going Breakfast Club, National Lampoon, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, Ferris Bueller. I mean, yeah. Plain Trains, Automobiles. It's unreal. Exactly. Exactly. So uh, a much like we did with the Zucker Abrams writing study, I wanted yeah, yeah. to to do another writing study, and and you know I was trying to maybe align it with February. A lot of these are rom coms, and we're going to be focusing a lot on those like '80s rom com heartthrob type of movies. And Sixteen Candles, I mean, really fits it. It fits the bill. If anything, is it's such a. I was watching this movie. It is such a blueprint for oh. movies to come like super bad, uh, easy A. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. These type of teen raunchy comedies. He's very good at them. <laughs> yeah, uh, Sixteen Candles. I mean, wow! It is. It, it feels like. I mean, obviously, it's a throwback with all the music and whatnot, but it feels right 
out of one of those films. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, clone. So why start with this? So you started with this and not Mr. Mom. Was there a specific reason? Like, what do we do with the film studies? Is it just going to kind of be uh, well hit uh, some milestones, hit some of the big boys? No, no, it's it's going to be just the initial work of these again these these kind of eighties kind of rom coms. So I'm okay. going to be doing Sixteen Candles, Breakfast Club, Weird Science, Pretty in Pink, and then okay, so and strictly gonna... with that romance, not exactly. just the comedy of him. Yeah, okay, yeah. romance related, and, and even skipping some of the National Lampoon stuff, uh, and and probably ending with Ferris Bueller's because I, I legitimately love the movie. And like you that, went through, there's plenty of there's ammunition plenty left of in the belt. For you next know? Year, absolutely, <laughs> we, can, we can have a second round with the John Hughes study. So man, that's um, awesome. But yeah, that, that's that's where my curiosity was. Yeah, and I think even even folks uh, talking with Tom about this, I said to myself like. Are these old like '80s comedies? Are they good? You know, and and that type of just basic question is usually where my curiosity starts, and and there's no better way to kind of air it out and explore it on the podcast. And when yeah, and when '80s are known for not, it's not a good decade for movies, right? right. And when you think of good comedies, it's funny how many he's a part of. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. mean, he's a part of almost I would say almost half of them, right? Right. When it comes to actually good, known, still talked about comedies to this day. Yep. But regardless, okay, let's go back to 1984. This is 16 Candles, written and directed by him. And what do we get with this film? Sure. Uh, and li- like I said, really a blueprint as far as rom-coms go and a blueprint into the 2000s. Again, I was, I was feeling a lot of echoes um, coming off of this film. Of course, as far as rom-coms go, um, 16 Candles is pretty iconic, uh, but a concept that uh, I'll return to probably many times in the course of running the podcast is iconic. Does it always equal good? Right. Not always. Right. Um, Marley, Molly Ringwald stars as Sam Baker, a young girl waking up to her 16th birthday, that is totally unremarkable, and no one remembers it at all. That is our setup here, and the entire story takes place over pretty much 24 hours of her birthday and evolves from a typical school day to a Friday night school dance to a senior after party. And that basically gives us, I mean, even just from that explanation, you can feel super bad in that. You can mm. feel so many teen type of comedies that the payoff of the structure or the or the story structure is a part party is is getting drunk is trying to get laid you know what i mean it's yeah. and and it's right here i mean i i'm i don't know if there's a precursor i mean i'm sure there's there's you know some you know even even like a like a caddyshack or, or some sort of like party centric comedy i'm sure there's precursors to this but 16 candle candles i can't stress enough really felt like a blueprint for that reason what was the one i believe it came out in the 70s and was it george lucas that did it Oh. It was set in like the seventies town or set in the fifties oh, town, but uh, came out in the seventies. Rich, oh, uh, Rich was it Rich Mount High? No, no, no. Um, you're thinking of. Um, <laughs> we covered it on the podcast. No, why can't I think of it? Was it not Lucas? Yeah, it's totally Lucas. <laughs> it's. Um, I thought it was Fast Times at Ridgemont High or no. something. Like that. <laughs> That'd be amazing if what? George Lucas did that. <laughs> um, wow, why can't I think of this? American Graffiti. Yes, different okay, though. Okay, all right. American Graffiti. Um, <clears throat> That's kids, right? It is kids, but when you watch it, it does not have the skeleton of what feels like a modern, you know, teen comedy. Okay, okay. Uh, this, I mean, really felt like you could probably watch it in a back-to-back with Superbad, believe it or not. <laughs> like, really, like, identical. Good double or, or Easy A, maybe, more so for the for the girl perspective of it, so. But yeah, uh, as far as that type of setup, there's a lot of enjoyment there. There are so many young actors, including a very young John Cusack, QC boy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm aware. I mean, he's like a child, a literal child. Yeah, I'm aware of him. 
and, and a lot of minor roles that you just see and you're like, oh, wow. So I, I think that as well is kind of a, a base curiosity I have with a lot of these movies. Yeah. Of course, Pretty in Pink has uh, James Spader and things like that. And I want to see, you know, a couple, a couple of those. Yeah. So John Cusack was a, a pleasant surprise, uh, despite us shitting on him. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I can't understate it enough uh, how much this is a platform for Molly Ringwald. And, and she's honestly great in this. You know, besides her red locks, she really does remind me of Emma Stone in 2010's EZA for the structure, for how jokes are set up, uh, for how kind of self-deprecating comedy is. And you can see this role will be a blueprint uh, moving forward, as, as, as I've mentioned already. Um, when it comes to Ringwald, what I was so fascinated with is that she does these movies. She's in Pretty in Pink. She's in Breakfast Club. Right. And then it's kind of like nowhere. Uh, Did she, drop, she fall off the map? Yeah, she kind of just falls off the map, which uh, uh, is, is just surprising. I, I, I thought uh, after seeing this, I see why she got other... Other type of uh, roles, no less with Hughes, but I was just kind of surprised that it didn't go anywhere. I wonder if that. somebody else took her position, basically. Yeah. I wonder if another young actress came up and it was better or just started getting yeah. the parts. And it happens with actress, actresses specifically as well. well how, so. yeah, yeah, it happens with, well, it happens with actors as well. Sure. But you could just, it might be just be somebody might have just swooped in, stole her thunder. Yeah, yeah, another another red-haired. <laughs> but yeah, much raunchier than I expected. Um, this film earns its rated R rating in the first 15 minutes. And rated, P- rated R? Yeah, it's I, think rated, I think it's rated PG, I'm seeing. PG? No way. I mean, it makes sense. I think this is with the R. ratings back then. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> maybe. I mean, my notes were. I have specifically like, how did this? How was this presented as a teen comedy? Uh, <laughs> but I guess we're going back. We don't know. Well, don't forget, Jaws. I think is rated PG. <laughs> right, right. So um, we're in the we're in the Wild West. Of yes, the NPAA. yes. Uh, but uh, Hughes, I, I would say his writing here, his c- comedic writing, can honestly be seen a mile of way. You see it in the family presentation, mm. just in this, even this premise of her birthday being forgotten. The first, you know, when she wakes up, the entire family is getting ready. They're fighting for time in the bathroom. It's right out of Home Alone. Yeah. He has... This style, I mean, it, it really, like, the, the, the clouds parted, and I right. saw all of John Hughes' work <laughs> at once, uh, and it was all in a get-up and a wake-up sequence, so, but yeah, it, it really is interesting for that reason, and I, I gotta say, right out of the gate, I was very happy to watch this, because it hit, it scratches that itch. The Why I do these kind of director writing studies is I like seeing the progression, yeah. and I could see it right out of the gate. So, folks at home, if you follow along at all in watching movies with me, I think this one is going to be a fascinating one to, to uh, unpack for that reason, because you really see Hughes kind of just knows what works in his films, and maybe that's a point of... And from the get-go, he just, and he just yeah, runs with it. Yeah. Maybe that's a point that he... I don't know, kind of get stale in his own work. I mean, maybe it's derivative. At well, a certain yeah, point. when you get into Dennis the Menace <laughs> and Home Alone three, right. yeah, it starts to lose its luster a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, but yeah, uh, very very something, uh, very, very iconic, uh, and um, again, just just fascinating to watch. I will say, 
in some some criticism to this film, I really did like this film a lot. Mm-hmm. There was some not too cool comedy in here. Uh, believe it or not, there's some really out of pocket Chinese jokes out of nowhere. <laughs> I, you know, I mean, I think the movie does a good job to give explanation to that. Why I think this was at least acceptable is that I think the movie does a good job at casting an innocent light around it. You know, these sure. are snot nosed kids. Yeah, you we're know doing, what I mean? yeah, they teens. Are, we're they're doing all with... insensitive. They're all raunchy. You know, what I mean, yeah, they're not definitely. meant to be paragons of <laughs> you know <laughs> politically correctness. <laughs> but yeah, a very unique soundtrack as well. I would say we are dangerously close to a Suicide Squad syndrome, triple S. That there is a con- near constant barrage of licensed music. Is the uh, idea that it's moving? Like it's the movie very fast paced. There's oh, constant yes. motion, like yes. literally just with masses of people talking. Sure, yeah, uh, to, to school party to after party. Yeah, right, absolutely. Right. And it's snappy enough on its own. I'm really fifty fifty on this because I think I enjoyed the soundtrack. I, it's very eighties, but it was enjoyably eighties. <laughs> It is. It kind of chooses unique music. It's not just your your top hits. You know, they're very unique kind of deep cuts, if you will. Right. When it comes to the use of it, that's where I'm in conflict with it because ultimately it was just a, a barrage of just song <laughs> yeah. after song. Yeah. It's like, all right, just I don't know. I mean, <laughs> let it just kind of. I don't know if they were scared, like the kids couldn't act or deliver the comedy without punchlines. You know, I, 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 I think know. it was a product of movies back then, like rom-coms a little yeah. bit back then, and you could say it still is now. Sure. But I, I feel like that's a... I'm very curious as we go through John's, John yeah. Hughes's films, mm-hmm. are we just going to get this over and over and over exactly. again? Exactly, exactly. Uh, maybe an aspect you don't love. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it could just be a thing of him, you know? Yeah. Some did play into the actual punchline of jokes themselves. Mm. Uh, there's like they play the Godfather theme a couple times okay. as, a, as, a, as a joke set up. So I would say it gets a slight pass. But, uh, it hits you over the head a little bit, though. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's very in your face. <laughs> and and if it wasn't for the unique choices of the of the tracks, uh, I think I'd be a lot more critical on it. You, honestly, you one hundred percent, you can see how this was a supercharged film on release, and you can you know just honestly, you watch the first first 15, 20 minutes, you can feel mm. why it was so iconic. Uh, it really captures an electricity at the time. Uh, but like I opened up with, that doesn't necessarily save the film from criticism, uh, and this one seriously is dated in parts. So uh, I, I don't regret watching it at all, and you can definitely see how Hughes is a mastermind. And if anything, I found myself reflecting fondly uh, over the film, uh, laughing at some of the jokes. Okay, all right. Especially listening to the that that garish soundtrack back. <laughs> uh, I, I was I was finding myself uh, almost like kind of craving a weird rewatch of it. Uh, wow. Yeah, yeah. So I think it was interesting, um, but more than anything, uh, my takeaway with Sixteen Candles is that this movie is a precursor for much better things to come. We're gonna go ahead and give sixteen. Candles, a 69. Okay, 69, good movie. Yeah, I'm excited to see where these all land as we go through them. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, he's got some heavy hitters coming up that we're going to follow. Absolutely. So I love it. I mean, and that's kind of cool. Like you said, it it hits so many beats of of modern day stuff. That's great that almost approaching 40 years later, Mm. it's still really hitting in a modern way. Yep. You know, and it would be kind of cool to do a doubleheader of this and more modern, like an Easy A or something like that. Right, right. Or super bad or. 
the plethora of ones that we have now. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> but okay, 16 Candles with a 69% from John Hughes. That's awesome. And then here we are, our another film study, our third film study that we're working on now. <laughs> we're juggling them all. Uh, we're going back through Alejandro's stuff. Alejandro and Aritu, yep. who we covered with uh, Bardo, yep. False Chronicle of a Handful of Truths. Wow. <laughs> no, no stumble into the name there. Uh, of course, he also, like we talked about, did Birdman, did, did The Revenant. Yep. And we're going to go back into some of his earlier work to yeah. kind of study where he came f- came from, some of his also Spanish films and everything like that. Yeah. So this is the year, this is came out in 2000. This is called Amores Peros. Mm-hmm. And what do we get? So why do we start here? And, and what are we getting here with an early kind of Alejandro? Sure, sure. And, and yeah, so much of his work um, I, I want to to cover because, it one, it's a perfect like five movies that I've not watched. It scratches the itch in the sense that uh, I'll have watched everything that he's ever done now. Right. Uh, after, after uh, you know, tackling these films. It was kind of a, a light bulb moment because, we, you know, two of his films we would have as must-watches on the website. So. So, I mean, I, I, I'm i really curious about his foundational work, um, Spanish or, or not. So I, I love that idea. It's very much going back through like uh, Bong Joon-ho or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. You know, there's something good. Let's see. Let's see what's leading up to it. And just real quick. This is kind of his his first motion picture. Yes. Like very the other first. ones have shorts or something like that. Bingo. Or, okay. First feature. That would be there for him. Okay, so. gotcha. The title here translates to uh, Dog's Love, but has kind of a negative spin to it. It conveys a, a bitter, painful love. And in my research, I found this film referred to as Love's a Bitch. Uh, so uh, let me tell you, this was a perfect choice to kick off February. <laughs> so <laughs> here's, our, here's our bitter romance. Uh, and uh, when it comes to some of the setup of this film, this film is very ambitious. It juggles a almost Pulp Fiction-like storytelling that we have kind of three different groups of characters that are juggled and then kind of cross paths in between. Okay. If that if that tracks uh, kind of what I'm saying with Pulp Fiction. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there's just some, uh, some, some kind of pre-work that I want to throw out there. One related to this being about dogs, and there are dogs in this. There is also uh, some very extreme dog fighting in this. And uh, you don't hear me saying like a trigger warning too often, but I always find myself <laughs> kind of wincing at some of this stuff. Uh, really? Oh yeah, it's 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 Some portrayed. Tarantino-esque. <laughs> it's yeah. Hard to watch dogfighting, huh? <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> uh, it is uh, it is portrayed hyper really impressive. I think for me, the whole scope of um, Inaritu's film project is trying to see what I love and know him to be as kind of this king of dreamlike atmosphere. My takeaway from uh, Amores Peros is that it is he he's able to build the atmosphere in the way that he's he does later on in his career, but that atmosphere is a very realistic depiction of this kind yeah. of low to very low middle class um, lifestyle. And very raw. Oh, yeah, very yeah. raw. Uh, a, a tiny bit of a trigger warning, and, um, and if anything, it just illustrates how brutal and real the world is. You know, the atmosphere our characters have to exist in is relentless and and just not holding punches so uh, a very a very a very serious movie uh the scope of the film explores love uh, and the messy things that come with it specifically this is tackled in a handful of relationships uh, as kind of chapters to the story mm-hmm. they kind of interlock as the the plot progresses again of the i, I don't know honestly if 
Pulp Fiction is the right way to describe this, but um, just that interlocking of groups of characters and the beginning is kind of just setting up where you get to know all the characters. Right. That is, right. That's the best way I could kind of describe this. But three primary groups. The first is a forbidden love that kind of examines the pressure of financial hardship placed on a relationship. This section contains our, our dogfighting arc. So just some really intense scenes both in and out of the pit. Uh, this was... I'll be honest, I have it in my ending notes. This film was a little bit pulling teeth for me to get to. I had to sit through two two sessions with it, which is, you know, I, I'm going to be honest when that kind of happens. You're uh, saying pulling teeth to get through as far as lack of interest, lack of, I need to put this down right now and come back to this, or was it, what was it exactly? Uh, uh, kind of a whole host of things, I would say, and again, I'll, I'll be very honest, it was, it was I, maybe not in the mood for subtitles. Uh, okay, because it it's all, we're dealing with a full Spanish film, yes, correct? Yeah, yeah, it was full Spanish. It was the intensity of the subject matter, and I just didn't grasp what was going on with like establishing all these characters. It just felt very disjointed for me. Okay. That that first arc, in addition to the trigger warning, might be, you know, might be tough to, to get through a little bit. The second is a, a new start at love that examines self-worth uh, and value in the relationship. I would call it the weakest of the three just because it... it doesn't mesh very nicely with other uh, with other with the other arcs okay. with the other characters, and the third and final is a redemption to recover a love lost and uh, examines the pain and words not said in in a relationship. Uh, this was for sure my favorite art, but it kind of turns into an action movie at the last <laughs> minute. So it was this razzle dazzle that it was just like, oh, this this is a great movie, <laughs> but up until that point, kind of saying, what what are people seeing here? What what what's going going on here so i mean i'd like the overarching story where we have okay we have three main different stories going on and yep. it's the you know past present and future of love essentially sure sure and and we're really dealing now are we dealing with multiple sets of people within these three stories or are we following three main people throughout these three main stories oh no multiple sets of people okay all right. uh, and, and and there is some some cross traffic with that right uh, yeah. at, both as the film progresses but how we're also introduced to at what point in time we're looking at this. Uh, a, a quick example without any spoilers is that in the first arc, we see the character of the third story, mm-hmm. and he's a homeless man, and he just kind of crosses the camera at some point, and you're saying, like, what was that about? You know, that seemed like there was something to it. It's not until later do we understand not only why he was there, but who he is and right. what he's trying yeah, to yeah, achieve. Yeah. Hmm. So, okay. Definitely one that you want to stay engaged with, and again, I, 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 I'm I, not going to put on a, a fake, um, a fake persona that... If I wasn't digging something, if I wasn't, you know, engaged because mm-hmm. of one reason or another, uh, I'm not going to shy away from saying that in the review. And I think uh, a combination of factors, I wasn't engaged right away with this one. Nonetheless, this film is almost unanimously referred to as his best. So I was coming into this with a, you know, almost shot in the foot with a lot of expectation of saying, right, right. this is his first film and across the board is referred to as his best. Uh, one of BAFTA, nominated for an Oscar, his first yeah. film nominated for best foreign film. Yeah. That's just crazy. Absolutely. So I was uh, coming in with a weird headset too, yeah. or a mindset I, with this. Honestly, just hearing about it, the premise seems cool. Yeah. It seems like you have a lot to work with the premise. Mm-hmm. I'm surprised maybe it wasn't gripping you too much. I would 
I would get a sense of, let's say if you were listening to you right now before sure. sitting down, yep. I would assume you would be a little bit more palatable for you. Um, you know what I mean? I think so. <clears throat> yeah, Coming I a little bit so. more prepared to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and that's and that's why I want to speak honestly about these things. Yeah. Because I see no fault in someone maybe not digging um, subtitles or, or foreign films or something like that. So Got to be in the mood. Yeah, that's exactly. That's the thing of you should be in the right mood for it. Yeah. Exactly. So I think there was, a like I said, a kind of a whole host of reasons why this wasn't hitting with me but uh, and needed that kind of second session with it you know that's my experience i think i want to talk openly about these things in reviews so. okay and so giving these three arcs giving these how was the acting here and you know oh, uh, phenomenal okay all right Absolutely phenomenal. i feel like he's very good at picking the right people yeah you yeah. know and i have I'm, no experience with any of these actors my actresses. boy's in it what who yeah my boy's in it. i haven't had a boy in a movie in a long time <laughs> Uh, Gail Garcia uh, Bernal. He plays Octavio. Okay. Octavio. Okay. Yeah. I was a very early watcher of Mozart in the Jungle on Amazon. Oh, and I think he won a Grammy for it. Even no, not a Grammy, an Emmy. No, Golden Globe. I think he won a Golden Globe. Sure, one of them. uh, Or multiple awards for his portrayal of. of his uh, character in that. Wow. The show's relatively good. Mozart yeah. in the Jungle. Yep. He's great in it. Wow. Like, he's really fun to watch and Fantastic. a very good actor. But Fantastic. So I always knew about that. Now, it's funny because I forgot about this movie, but I totally remember looking into it. Yep. And I almost watched it back when I was watching Mozart in the Jungle yep, yep. Uh, for him, for Garcia Bernal. That's great. Uh, but it's good to hear that the acting is carrying through. Yeah. And there's not, is there a arc that drops off because of acting or it's all just very solid? You know? uh, I think it's it's more so um, a game that anyone that watches this is going to have a preference. You know, just with there being a three-part structure, you're going to prefer one you, over the absolutely, other. Absolutely, yeah. Um, much like a, kind of, um, you know, an anthology type of film yeah. or a short film compilation type of thing. So how are we split exactly? Do we get? Oh, directly thirds. Okay, but cool. again, it all ties in, you know. Um, you'll right, be watching right. a scene in the second uh, arc or the second study of love uh, and you'll see something happen or there's a consequence of the first or even the third that kind of comes into play and okay. that's where this Tarantino type of storytelling is coming into play yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's very untraditional and it's very interwoven you know what I mean there's uh, there's an understanding the script has of its characters from a 10,000 foot view basically yep honestly and the presentation is what I, I, I love the most about this film I personally found the editing and the layering of these stories to be the ber- best part of the film um, you know slowly characters populate the film and parallel storylines emerge you know this really creates its own reality to the film uh, and this interlaced stories give meaning and context to other events so again while you're watching this that first hour there's a lot of hanging threads that could be frustrating for the viewer to watch and say what's going on in addition maybe to a language barrier right yeah but eventually it's all called back to and it's all tied together and that's very satisfying and in that way believe the hype for for this film uh it is it is a a masterful type of film that is able to understand what it's going after so well and and tie that together even though at first it's like well where's this going yeah right right uh having that structure used within a love story is impressive it's not really like a romance i mean it is romantic in a lot of ways and studies love but uh it's very bitter almost every story is uh, around heartbreak in, in some way. I'll close with saying this, um, and, and as I mentioned already, the critical reception of this film is huge and across the board considered his best. So my expectations were very high. Speaking honestly, there was a while watching this film and maybe just for that first session with it that I had 
a little trouble understanding the hype uh, while the pieces were being set up. Eventually, though, the threads converge and it comes together in, in the end in a very big way. Um, the film pays off in a very big way, not in a cheap razzle-dazzle either. It really is um, meaningful. You kind of walk away from the film and say, wow. You know, it affects you, yeah, uh, which yeah, I think yeah. is impressive. Uh, may not be my favorite, uh, and I per- personally would not say it's his best, but it is one hell of a first movie for Inaritu. We're going to go ahead and give Amores Perros a 78. Ooh, wow, 78. Very good score. Yeah. And what did Bardo get when we... Reg- I think I gave Bardo a 79, because I specifically remember that being uh, a little bit under... You know, I I I I, I remember yeah, myself seven, deliberating on that. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember the the internal conflict. Well, he's a director that hits. That's for sure. His, yeah. I mean, he is track record is phenomenal. Exactly. I mean, if you take his average score so mm. far, he's doing very well. <laughs> yeah. He's doing very very well. Absolutely. Yeah, maybe we can uh, maybe we can have a, a competition of directors. You know, who's got the highest average? You know, what <laughs> what were the statistics of every director? And <laughs> kind of put them in a in a in a fight in a cage match. Yeah, I mean that would be unbelievable because that'd just be a dog that'd be a dog fight in itself. That's, oh, that's the dog but, fight. <laughs> but all right, Vince. So we're gonna take time here, folks, and we're gonna thank our producers who help produce the daily ratings here. And we do have some who donated in. Glenn R is coming back. Mm. Um, Glenn and Carol R. And Glenn wrote, Greetings, Vinny and Thomas. As you know, we have been avid listeners since the beginning of the show. It's only getting better week after week and month after month. Wonderful to hear. Really enjoyed the last episode. You have had me laughing thinking of two grown men and a bottle of Jameson on a Saturday (laughs) night taking an action flick such as Puss in Boots in the theater. (laughs) And it was, it was, it was a blast. It It was was an absolute blast. Quiet down, youngsters, he said. We're trying to rate a movie here. (laughs) After your view, it kind of makes sense. We want to see it also. Uh, Thought it was somewhat ironic that the producer last week, Brandon, wanted children's movies, and lo and behold, there it is. Look at that. I'm Uh, a mind reader. My question, as has been in the past, is when will there be more comedies reviewed? Vinny, I think you rated maybe five comedies in the last 68 episodes. <laughs> I realize you mentioned several episodes ago that comedies are hard to rate, but I'm hoping you will get on your, hoping you will get your feet wet in the comedy pool. Mm. Uh, not interested in rom-coms, but just as a flat-out comedies he's looking for here. Yep. Um, what's that? Did somebody say Will Ferrell February? <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> Would love for the two of you to bump up the percentage of comedy movies in the, in the catalog and especially reviews by you, Vinny. Keep up the good work. Waiting patiently, Glenn and Carol are. <laughs> uh, well, oh, man. Hey, between that true. thing you do, maybe that thing you do, <laughs> I got to find some thread to tie that in. <laughs> I, I still would love some more comedies in there. Yeah. I, you're concerned about it, and I, sh- I wouldn't be. I, I think sure. you should watch it. How did you feel about it? That's what we're here for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I do agree that there is a separation between rom-coms and just coms. You know what I mean? Which we, uh, Yeah, which we don't have a lot of. Yeah, I think rom-coms there's quite a bit. But, Rom-coms uh, were definitely growing. Rom-coms but yeah, straight sure. comedies, yeah, that's where. But I mean, I brought it up in the the damsel distress review. It's like there's, I don't know, how do you how do you judge a joke in 1939 or 1937? Yeah. You know, it's experience it's of the tough. film really. Yeah, and some yeah. of, by the way, some of them are great and and hold <laughs> true and, and can just last through time. Sure. I mean, look at Sixteen Candles. How you like some of the stuff that didn't hit, true. but a lot of it, but a lot of it. Um, 
kind of kept through and it's just as fresh as it is today. And I could see where it was appropriate as well. You know, I mean, I, I guess I guess maybe but the it, navigating that is is seeing okay. It does does the film kind of earn making maybe a joke that doesn't yeah. land? But still, we're watching in the here and now. We always say we're watching in the yeah. here and now. You know what I mean? And does a comedy hit? Does it not? When you watch it, how are you enjoying it? Yeah, you know. Yeah. You know, and that's why I think I think it would be good to hit at some of the classics. I do. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. You know me. I love my wedding crashers. <laughs> wedding crashers is a classic. <laughs> Maybe that's what I gotta do. It's just it's because in the two thousands, there's so much. Uh, dodgeball came up uh, as well. Oh the my other god, day. I love dodgeball. Exactly. So I, I I think that could be that could be the focus. We'll see. We'll see. We could do an early April two- Fools. We could do. <laughs> <laughs> you could do a. 2000 to 2010 comedy run. Yeah. yeah. Just some of those, you know. It'd be a lot of, honestly, more than five. Or or not that it has to be five, but. It could be a slow film study. One a week, one every other week or something like that. (laughs) Throw in a comedy once in a while. But I agree. We could do some more comedies. Yeah. yeah. Uh, God knows, you know, we got two horrors coming up. (laughs) But uh, Glenn and Carol are, they say they're waiting patiently and they donated $50 this week. Wow. um, Wonderful. They donated multiple times now. We thank you so much for being a producer Mm -hmm. of the Daily Ratings. Folks, if you want to be a producer, you go to thedailyratings.com and you head to the donations tab. So just like Glenn and Carol did this time, you can write in a note, set in a donation of whatever amount you want. It's a value for value. Are you finding the show in the, in the website valuable? Like what I said last week, did we make you laugh? Are you watching a movie that you wouldn't have otherwise? Are you scratching some movies off your list? Is that any value to you? Sure. You put a number to it, you go to the dailyratings.com, and again, write in a note, we'll read it right here. So we thank you so much, Glenn and Carol. You are producers of the Daily Ratings, executive producers of episode 68. Once again, thank you so much. With that, we're going to go to our new release. He tried to stay away, folks. I tried to run for the hills. And he couldn't. He came crawling back. <laughs> I couldn't believe the midweek text that I got. <laughs> this is May 3 again. This is Megan. <laughs> this is the somewhat new now horror film. It's still in theaters. Yeah, yeah. Technically, it came out in 2022, but it came out in wide release yes. in January, early January. So it's still in theaters now. It's doing relatively well. Mm. Not Avatar well, but... For a um, for a January release, a horror film, nonetheless, it's doing pretty well. Lord knows we love to say it. This is Blumhouse schlock. <laughs> so let's see how schlocky it is. But yeah. this is Megan. Uh, it's rated PG-13, not R. It's an hour and 42 minutes. And yep. Vin, what do we get with Megan? May, May 3 again. May 3 again. Yeah. yeah. Megan is uh, very, very generic, but... Yeah, like I like I opened up in the beginning of the episode, um, you know, there is I was going to cover fear, which is just doing terrible tanking uh, critically box office wise. And I said to myself, if I'm going to watch something bad. I might as well watch something that has a, a freaking SNL sketch behind it. You know what I mean? It's that popular. It's true. No, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. You know? yeah. So chatting with my family, uh, it was, you know, despite my best effort to avoid Blumhouse horror that I rant and rave about, um, <laughs> there is a real Blumhouse horror that is, uh, you know, the biggest movie here. So duty calls. Um, it is doing surprisingly well, too. Yeah, exactly. For, for a Blumhouse flick for January horror, it's exactly. doing quite well. Yeah, yeah. They're falling into it. Methrigan is a new high-tech Android prototype for a toy company that boasts wild capabilities. Um, Much more than a talking doll, she has an adaptive AI brain, 
a host of robotic abilities, and most of all, pairs perfectly with its user's devices. And then when I say the user's devices, that means anything from a fictional Alexa in the home, to smart light bulbs, to your computer, to anything under the sun, basically. When Mithrigan's creator and uh, paired child user are at the peak of integrating her into their family, the capabilities of the doll turn for a horrific spin. Um, if this toy horror premise sounds washed out, well, that's because it is. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's all been there, done that. I mean, seriously, if I had to bet a high-tech spin on Chucky's from Child's Play reaching any sort of popularity, any degree of success, I would have lost big on this because I would have bet serious that no way would this movie be popular. But I guess that's why I'm not making the big bucks in Hollywood. Uh, or nonetheless, Blumhouse. <laughs> I'm not a Blumhouse exec. Uh, <laughs> originality, I think, is the real problem here. Every single moment of the movie is telegraphed so, so clearly as set up that I almost didn't have to watch the film. I mean, honestly, uh, the day that I don't watch a film and try to review it is the day the podcast ends. I mean, that, I, <laughs> yeah. I, you, folks, yeah. you have my heartfelt promise that that is my integrity, <laughs> that I will never review a film without watching it 100% It'll just be, Yeah, you'll, come, you'll host and I'll do Tommy Two Shoes. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but this film, I mean, I'm not joking here. I could have not watched the film and reviewed it. I mean, it is that predictable. You know, some factors around that setup, I honestly, I don't want to talk about them because if you are curious about this film, if you're curious about what's all the buzz about, um, that, sell, that, that the setup in the film of what is called back to for how the horror is conducted... What's Megan going to do? You know, how eventually do our family members get out of this uh, pickle? <laughs> uh, it's so clear that I, I don't want to go into it too much because uh, that's one of the few subtle joys is seeing it all kind of unpack in this film. As far as the pool of mediocrity, I can't really point to the director here. There's too limited experience. Yeah, here. it does like TV stuff or yeah. just not a lot of projects at yeah, all. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I can absolutely point to the writing, though. Uh, director James Wan and... Uh, Akella and Cooper. Akella Cooper, there we go. Uh, both uh, wrote this and honestly is a perfect example of the crap that they shovel out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, really. We covered uh, Malignant on one of the earliest podcast episodes. Yeah, we did, yep. All the issues repeat here. Um, Malignic, I would say, is a little bit better in the, the craziness uh, that that film achieves, but the same type of generic setup, telegraphed horror plot devices that are obviously going to be in the third act, I mean, it's all here. I mean, if you are surprised by this film, please write in, because I want to know exactly <laughs> what could surprise you. It, it's, it's, it's rough. Um... Listen, I won't doubt James Wan's placement as one of the biggest voices in horror. I mean, the guy made multiple, multiple, probably billion-dollar franchises at this point. But for something so simple uh, and something so predictable, I mean, this is a great example of why horror is never considered for any kind of critical recognition. And not that that really matters, but I think that does illustrate just how generic and plain and washed out this movie is. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> 
I think Comet's Tom. <laughs> it's, I, I don't, I, I don't want. I don't want to be shitting on this so much. I think it deserves to be shat on. Um, <laughs> I don't think. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm surprised how that it's doing well in the theaters. Again, it's just also because we have a lack of good things to go see. Sure. I think it's part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still doing better than A Man Called Otto. I'm surprised that it's at <laughs> over 80 million domestic, over, what, 140 yep. for total yep. worldwide. And that's very impressive for something like this. Yeah. I, I don't hate that the whole doll horror genre comes back or that it's been overdone. Sure. It's that's what it is. We have jump scare yeah. horror, we have slasher horror, we have it's just what it is. The question is how is it done this time around? Is sure. it something that's gonna be exciting and not the same old, same old. So mm-hmm. I'm not surprised it's the same old, same old. It is. It's I don't know. I, this is proper this is Blumhouse Schlock, you yeah. know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You know, I I don't know. I no interest as it was coming out. No interest now. Yeah. Uh, to go see it, unfortunately. But yeah, I think you know, shit away if you need to. <laughs> shit away. <clears throat> I, I feel like there's not much to talk about. I feel like this is exactly. You know, we don't need even twelve minutes. There's to... less to talk about even when you f- see the movie. Right. <laughs> it's terrible. Um, um, was it dragging, or at least was it snappy enough and kept things moving along? Um, before we finished up. No. I mean, it, it doesn't drag, but I, I will say that it's fairly formulaic and stale within its own brief hour and 40. Uh, and, and again, that that's just how this is a, a special kind of bad. It's a special kind of bad because of just how predictable it is. Um, you can just see the writing on the wall when... Something is given even a, a second of focus. You know it's either going to come back in the third act as uh, exactly how you would expect it to be, right? Or, or but, even I mean, the setup as well with Megan and you know the writing on the wall of, I guess the forebodingness of okay, we know it's going to go bad, right? You know why are we connecting her to all the things and what you know she has so much user access and right. all this stuff. It's like I don't I, know. I, is it not? I feel like horror is one of the most predictable. Sure. But, but then again, we also have a lot of bad horrors, so maybe it just yeah. goes in that pot. Absolutely. I, th- I think, uh, I mean, predictability is just one element, but yeah. Like any uniqueness, how did the doll look? How did the act, because it was an, they used a real kind of like kid actor, yeah. actress, then they did a voice for her. Yes. But like, was this, did it look good? Did it look like a weird, creepy uh, robot doll? Uh, I, creepy in, in some ways, uh, comedic in others, as all of James Wan's properties kind of dip into a little bit of comedy okay. at some point. Okay. The funny dance of the doll that has kind of gone viral is uh, is definitely part of that. Yeah, uh, I got to be honest. I mean, the silicon face, uh, it's intentionally meant to look a little bad because mm-hmm. this is a prototype. Right, right. It is meant to definitely look a little bit uncanny valley because it's supposed to creep you out. Yeah, definitely. So normal criticisms that I would throw at practical effects or something like that, all intentional here. So a little bit hard to to talk about, uh, That's if fair. that makes sense. That's you fair, yeah, I mean? absolutely. I, I mean, b- bottom line, did I find Megan scary? No. No. Because it's a PG-13 movie. Right. You know, it's it's meant for this mass consumption horror that Blumhouse is is obviously, that's that's 100% their brand. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, that really is kind of my summary thought as far as the problem is around originality, formulaic and stale within its own under two hour runtime. Yeah. That is, that is my elevator pitch for okay. this. You okay. know what I mean? And why I think it shouldn't be 
it shouldn't be watched. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say. Uh, I think the story for the film Megan is told in the phrase right place, right time. Uh, little to no competition in the box office for its genre and praise on the fear of the audience fresh off their new smart devices received for the holiday season. We're going to go ahead again. We're going to go ahead and give Megan a 25. Wow. Ooh, way worse than I thought. Yeah, yeah. Way worse. Yeah. And the 20 just annoyed by it. Twenty five is bad, and uh, I really want to be honest here. It, it's not because of my expectations going into this. Uh, this is this is really judging the film on its own merits. And again, where does originality play into it? If this is all washed out, this has all been there, done that. What kind of electricity do I have to? recommend something and say oh you right. gotta see this yeah. no we've all seen it before. right yeah yeah <laughs> wow okay so so annoyed with the film for the most part <laughs> for the most part i would i would disagree with you for one thing sure. I, I would say i kind of agree with you it's doing good at the box office as we just said because there's not much out there yeah kind of mm-hmm. um however what is out there besides avatar is a lot of bs yeah, we covered Skinnamarink. We covered other kind of missing <laughs> stuff or mystery things yep, like yep. like missing and whatever the other one was. I forget. Um, <laughs> so there is stuff as far as other horror stuff, which we're about to get true, to. True, true. But I just for some reason this is striking a chord with people. I I, I don't know. Maybe it's the ninety four percent critic rating it has on that Rotten Tomatoes. Is on ninety four percent, unbelievable. Ninety four percent, unreal. Uh, okay, so let's go to our last film here. This is Infinity Pool. This is Brandon Cronenberg is back, so it's a little bit of heavy expectation just because of what he's coming from. Sure, sure. Uh, we covered. Boy, wh- they get a lot of coverage, don't they? I know. <laughs> the Cronenbergs. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if many people have heard about this. It is we covered one of Brandon Cronenberg's stuff. Ah, uh, yes, he's, Possessor. Yeah, he's right there with his dad making horror films. This <laughs> stars Alexander Skarsgård. And what is the storyline here? And is it refreshing, new, and good in any ways? Uh, uh I don't know if I have an answer on the story side, but <laughs> it is definitely refreshing and new, um, and uh, a doozy of a film. I mean, this one. Uh, was a was a challenge to even write the review. It was um, very hard not to talk about some of the more spoiler spoilery sides of this, but uh, I'm going to try my best and and hopefully I can kind of give um, some good brackets around the film because I think this film could also benefit from a little bit of. I don't know, a heads up of what you should be focusing on this film to maybe avoid frustration and saying, what the hell is this? You know what I mean? Okay, so a little uh, all over the place. Not all over the place, just very out there. Okay, Extreme. so it's Cronenberg-y. Yeah, it's Cronenberg. It's Cronenberg. He follows in his dad's footsteps. <laughs> so um, we covered Possessor not too long ago uh, with some decent praise. Uh, 63, we gave that. Back again with Brandon both writing and directing uh, on his third feature film. I don't think the film has the same problems as Possessor. Um, Possessor's problem was just kind of, you grew numb to the hyper-violence. There was just so much hyper-violence that you just kind of like, it glazes over at a certain point, even though it gets more and more crazy. But it does highlight my frustration I have with his kind of minimal bare-bones world building, which I think is, again, a hard issue because he is writing and directing here. So definitely a lot of vision, but I just feel like a second hand in there just to refine some elements would really go a long way. Okay. This one's a doozy, so strap in. In 
Infinity Pool is a psychedelic sci-fi thriller horror that stars primarily Alexander Skarsgård and Mia Goth, uh, both coming off of their A24 stint. And our setting is is really key to the whole experience uh, as we focus on a fictional island country that holds a luxury resort, and that luxury resort is our setting. I'll put a put a pin in that luxury resort just just for now. Skarsgård is uh, a struggling writer and staying there with his girlfriend when he gets tangled into a friend group that bewitches them into reckless actions. Um, and that's led by Mia Goth's character. In ways, it was kind of interesting because the, the film kind of captures a story of when you're on vacation as a couple, you kind of link up with other couples and uh, maybe, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, party with them or something like that. That was what this what this setup was. Those those kind of shenanigans, though, get him into a lot of trouble. And when he is given an ultimatum for committing a crime drunk, Skarsgård has to choose between death and a... <laughs> surreal tortured existence <laughs> and it's 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 out there that will leave him kind of mentally deranged uh, and that mental derangement is definitely the tone of this film this film is very manic this film is very hedonistic the film is um kind of all about uh no no bars to doing what you want to do mm. and and I'm on vacation and you know that's taken to such a an extreme and I really mean an extreme do you know uh, where the idea came for this film? No, no. It came from, I believe, uh, like nightmares that Brandon Cronenberg had oh, had. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Well, <laughs> that that has me that has me analyzing <laughs> the, the doozy that this film is. But yeah, uh, and I'll be honest, uh, this film, like I said, it was kind of a lot to try to write the review for, uh, and so really- I actually had several uh, kind of aha moments as well in reflecting over it. Um, okay, saying, oh, wow. so this film definitely has you thinking. Yeah, definitely has you consumed, scratching your head after afterwards as well. Yeah, yeah. So it, um, and some of that I think does play into real criticism. I, yeah. I think he kind of drops the ball with world building in ways that his father does not. Uh, Interesting. But, uh, so are we? We're stuck on this fake island yeah. at this resort, basically. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so we're really heavily on what is going on with these characters. Yeah, what right? is going what, on with the resort? It's just crazy stuff. Yes. Again, I, I, I don't want to give spoilers, no, but for sure. the, there's a central technology, just like there was in Possessor, mm-hmm. that defines the whole film. That central technology is barely explored, but my issue with it is that the suspension of disbelief, like what you have to do to put that stuff to the back burner right, and just right. focus on what the story and the film actually wants to focus on which is partying and have a wild, a wild time mm-hmm. is such mental gymnastics I, I can't <laughs> let it go it, it is insane that they throw this out here that this country this third world you know resort co- uh, island uh, has access to this and that it, the story is not about it and has and does very little to nothing to explain it it's it's outrageous so you're meant to just forget about that then uh, it it's yeah it's it's a shame because just, it's just play ball play ball on it's, it. it is it is very much play ball and yeah. and, and have a wild time okay so. yeah um but yeah it's a hard movie to unpack because it intentionally leaves a lot to the audience's imagination without a lot of answers and hopefully I can give an idea of what that kind of what what to tune into. I would say going back to that pin, mm-hmm. tune into uh, the resort resort itself. The resort really is the whole focus of the story, and this was this was kind of an aha moment. You know, there are there were moments and things that the resort 
the management of the resort did that I thought were just kind of like background noise. But upon reflection and, and kind of understanding it a lot more, that is very important to what I, what the whole point of the film hey, is. Hey, I like that. That's that's. Um, He's very so. There is strategy behind it. It's not. Let's just do a bunch of crazy crap. Throw it at the screen. No. Yeah. This is this is thought out. Yeah. Quite a bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. This is not just spectacle uh, for spectacle's sake. Or okay. Anything well, like that. in that, that's respect. That's respectable in itself. Yeah. You right. Know. Right. Uh, when it comes to kind of the game, it, it's it's interesting. You know, this this resort is is letting these people kind of explore the darkest of their fantasies, and I think the game is figuring out just how complicit. The resort is in all of this. Okay, and let me let me get into the tech because it's it's hard not to focus on. Much like Possessor, you know, again, there's this key technology that is the crux of the whole movie, and it's frustrating because it's the only sci-fi element in the in the in the film. So it obviously, spotlit, you know, mm-hmm. this is yeah. portrayed as a sci-fi for that reason. It just does little than that as such a critical plot device is is left to a background element and. I, I would say what it is if it wasn't one of the coolest elements of the film. I mean, it is really like horrific and it's awesome. But I, I, I can't I can't take that away from a first watching right. experience of Infinity <laughs> Pool because it is something else. I would say you con- contrast this with his father's work. David Cronenberg, his films are taking like a central technology like that and exploring it through the story. Right. Crimes of the Future, exploring what's going on with, uh, you know, this this wrong evolution through man. Uh, Videodrome, explaining, uh, kind of exploring what this this TV-centric world, uh, hyper-centric world, it does for these characters. Unfortunately, that's not here. Uh, I think my issue is that the hook of the whole movie falls on the short shoulders of a plot device that has next to nothing to explore through it. Uh, I just think the suspension of disbelief is just way too large. Okay, uh, I would imagine right. every single... I would almost... I would put money on this. Every single viewer of this film will have the same questions and none of those questions will get answered because <laughs> it's all around this. So, um, you know, that that slip into how he pays for his crime and what he chooses instead of death, that is, again, uh, the psychedelic elements, the surreal elements, and the horror elements are all connected to this. And unfortunately, it's kind of left at the side. I did love the film's performances, though. Okay. Uh, Absolutely love the performances here. Wow, Mia Goth. I, I... haven't seen the X movies or X and Pearl, and it's kind of its own little universe, I okay, guess. Okay, all right. Phenomenal in this. Okay, that's She's okay. so good in this. Up and coming, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she balances this kind of manic performance that can be admittedly annoying and grating at times, but flawless in how this character needs to be, and, and that is really an amazing antagonist. Um just like so fantastic, uh, you know. I I was I was talking about this with someone, and they brought up that there's you know a lot of sexy sequences with this, and I won't lie, you know, Mia Goth, um, pretty impressive in a lot of ways. But when it comes to what she does as an antagonist to the story, I mean, really just flawless. Um, she was she was by far the standout. Okay, um, even over Alexander Skarsgård. Yep, yep, absolutely. Skarsgård okay. is good uh, and brings a lot of range that 
uh, we just kind of didn't see in the recent Northman okay. uh, in his role there. But yeah, uh, Mia Goth definitely stole, stole the show and definitely stole the show from the entire crew of the resort regulars, you know, the couples that they're linking up uh-huh. with on, you know, that kind of, you know, couples on the vacation or on the cruise. And uh, I just really just love how far that was pushed into the true insanity uh, of the plot points that, you know, the things that these, this crew does, you know, it goes from, Hey, let's drink on the beach to, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's a true insanity. So folks, it's a gorgeous looking film uh, with a great style tuned in through fooling the audience on multiple levels. Uh, and I can say it's a, a bit style over substance, but the film challenged me and had me thinking about it almost near constantly since I saw it, no oh. less for having to write the review. It was this in 16 Candles. Let me talk about it. <laughs> I don't know where my head was at this week. But, uh, I think um, reflecting on it, if you do watch it, understand that it will kind of take a little bit to have the aha moment and I definitely grew to appreciate it more but for this score I am also considering that that it takes a little bit to get that aha uh, I'm not letting you know some of my issues go with the film because I think there are some answers or some questions that just don't get answered that impact that shock it it is something else and this this film is shocking in a lot of ways uh i think i'm excited to see what else brandon can do and i'm excited to see what uh audience reactions are to such an out there film uh no less put into a wide release we're going to go ahead and give infinity pool a 70 on the dot okay 7 that's a pretty good score oh yeah and death better than possessor too yeah it's going to something that's going to have you thinking and like you said it's you need to work with it. You need to pay yeah. attention. Yeah. You need to be a part of it, dig in, mm-hmm. and kind of like, because I'm sure the more you watch and pay attention, yep. the better it's actually going to be. Yeah. The more maybe some things will be answered for you. Exactly. Because those are the areas that there are answers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Will you be returning to this again a second or third time, and can you expect it to get better as you watch it more? I think so. I think it maybe would we'll get one more rewatch. Beyond okay. that, I don't know, because it's, it's also very weird. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> and also very intense. So. Uh, it's about two hours long this one is rated r and uh okay <laughs> wow okay it's 70 percent, and it just came out uh i don't know how how many theaters it's in uh, i think it's a full wide release oh okay all right. yeah, yeah so hopefully it's out for a bit it might kick megan off as far as <laughs> one can only some horror stuff in the coming weeks so yeah. i think it had a limited release yeah talk about polar opposite that, yeah. i mean there was predictability and then there was <laughs> i couldn't predict Absolute it bonkers. even watching the film so <laughs> <laughs> okay Vince. so looking at this looking at our film studies coming up here uh anything you want to touch on or are we uh we rolling credits here uh just excited for the m9 Shyamalan week um uh really the structure here yeah. Time crunch wise, I'm thinking, uh, you know, Shyamalan's such a an out there director, such a mixed bag. Uh, so I'm thinking the structure is is too good, too bad, and then knock at the cabin door is kind of the coin flip. Oh, uh, because um, we I was, talked about that. You were really unsure of how oh, you wanted yeah. to tackle his movies. And I've been talking to some producers of the show as well, Matt okay. D specifically, <laughs> and uh, man, uh, it, it's 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 hard to tackle because Shyamalan has so many eras of really good to tremendously bad so what do you cover in this kind of week I think what I've settled on uh, even talking to a whole slew of people is again I don't know what side of the coin Knock at the Cabin is going to be. So let's take some of the good, some of the bad, and see I where like it I like that falls. a lot. I really mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. Um, I think that that's, that's a good one. 
Yeah. I like that. So stay tuned next week, folks, for the film study of M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong. Um, <laughs> a PA boy. Awesome, Vin. Vin, thank you so much. <laughs> Keystone <laughs> Race. I forgot about that. Uh, Vin, thank you so much for watching these films. Thanks for stopping by here. Folks at home, we'll run it down one more time. We have A Damsel in Distress with a 66%. 16 Candles with a 69, Amores Peros with a 78, Megan with a 25, and Infinity Pool with a 70%. Folks, we thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Daily Ratings Podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, folks, if you would, could you give us a good rating or tell a friend about us? If you're wondering if a film is worth the watch, or if you just like to see more movie ratings from Vince, be sure to stop by thedailyratings.com, where we have our ever-expanding catalog of films. Also, if you found value in the podcast or our site, become a producer and go to the Donations tab on thedailyratings.com. You can donate whatever amount of value you feel you received from us. We're looking to build this into something large and great, but also be independent from those corporate sponsors. So we greatly appreciate any support from you all. So thanks so much, and we'll see you next time on the Daily Ratings Podcast.